Have you noticed anything creepy about the twins, apart from the fact that they're twins? Just because they're twins doesn't automatically make them creepy. It does a little bit. When I was your age, television was called books. Welcome, everyone, friends, listeners, readers, fellow armchair travelers, to the very last episode in the year 2021 of the Book Exchange podcast. Uh, We are coming up to the very end of the year, and, you know, it's the holidays, it's all that natural craziness, but, you know, amongst critical circles, I guess you would say, uh, at the end of the year, uh, you tend to have, you know, top 10 lists and sort of roundups and, you know, what, what was the best stuff of the year in, that was in 2021. So that's what we're doing for this episode, ladies and gentlemen. We are, for the first time, really, we, uh, my co-host and I, Jude Joseph Lovell, who is on with me here, and I'll give him a chance to ring in in a second. You know, we, every year for as long as I can remember, we, just for fun, we put together our, our, our best books of the year list at the end of the year and we share them with each other and some close friends and family and stuff so this year we're going to broaden that out and we're going to do that on the show so that's what this episode is we'll be sharing our personal best books of the year 2021 and with that i'd like to welcome jude to the show a familiar voice to all of you jude how's it going merry christmas happy new year what's up oh ho ho here I am. We made it to the end of the year. I'm wishing everybody happy holidays, whatever you celebrate. Yeah, let's get it going for the last episode of the year. Yeah, I know you and I have been looking forward to this one. This is just this is like you know, the whole show is fun for us, obviously, and sort of catnip. But this really is because we really, you know, even for us and those who listen to this show, you know, will know by now that this is saying a lot. Even for us, we really nerd out with the with these top 10 lists at the end of the year uh, to share with each other. Cause it's just a fun way to kind of review everything that you've read. You know, it's just consider what stands out, what's really, you know, left a mark on your mind or your memory and uh, you know, share it. That's what, that's what readers do. So it'll be a lot of fun. We're going to do that today and we'll kind of get into, you know, how we make our list. This is not, you know, um, sometimes like with, for movie critics or whatever, or book critics, in fact, New York Times or, or whatever, um, former presidents even, you know, they'll review what the, be- <clears throat> what the best 10 books were that came out in the past year. But we, we tend to do it a little bit differently, but we'll, we'll get into that. In- Is there anything uh, administratively or uh, elsewise that you need to say before we get started? Well, just to comment, you know, to go behind the scenes a little bit. Sorry, John, but just earlier today, you were saying to me, um, you know, sort of off camera, yeah, man, I didn't prepare for this episode as much as some of the other ones because, you know, we put in hours and hours of preparation to every yeah. episode that we do. And I was I was chuckling to myself because I was like, this is the this is the episode that we don't need to prepare for. In a way, you kind of prepare for it all year. Right. Like you. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying we didn't prepare, but like, um, 
you know, as you just explained, we go through this exercise every year and, and you in fact said it the way I was going to say it, which are their, their books that make a mark on you during the year. And those, those marks kind of stay there, you know? So, uh, you know, and we'll get into this, I guess, but for me that you kind of almost sort of mold these books over just here and there through the course of the year. That's how they end up on the list in the first place. So like, you know, I was chuckling to myself because I was like, I don't think, I don't think you're going to need a whole lot of prep because as soon as we get going, you know, to quote the princess bride, wait till I get going, you know, on these, <laughs> on these books. And then we can really riff on these all day, I think. So it's going to be fun. Yeah. 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 And of course that's a good point. Um, and I think, you know, not only is it fun to make this list every year and just speaking personally or, or, or for us as a unit, <laughs> you know, cause I know the way we both function, but not only is it just a lot of fun, you know, for book lovers to kind of go back and review what they've read, but to me, it like has a lot of value too, because, you know, uh, it really helps me to sort of, I don't know, when you read a good book and it really makes a mark on you, you mull it over for a while, but when you're like us and you're just constantly reading, you kind of move on to the next thing. And it, you know, it takes up occupancy somewhere in your brain, but you know, you don't always go back and revisit it. Right? And some books are, as you'd well know, you know, are, you know, really are worth, you know, mulling over and considering for a while. So what this list, you know, coming up with this list does is helps me to do that. Helps me kind of go back and kind of review why I thought the book was so valuable. And in doing that, you know, it kind of helps to, you know, lodge it even more firmly in the old memory banks, you know? So anyway, that's what we're going to be doing. We'll explain sort of the rationale behind our list in a minute, but uh, you know, as always with this show, I think first we'll just talk about what we've been reading lately. And uh, with that, uh, I'll pass it over to you. Okay. Well, technically I'm like crossing over books. So I'll mention two books really quickly because I just uh, finished one book today and started another one. That's just how we roll, you know, but uh, so the last episode, um, I was waxing very lyrical at the end of the world war two episode about this book that I was going to be reading, <laughs> the autobiography of Lemmy Kilmister. Uh, a lot of people say Kilminster, but there's no there's no N in there. That's one thing I learned. Kilmister, he, Lemmy, as he was known, kind of a one-name sort of dude like Bono, he was the lead singer and founder of the band Motorhead, the English sort of hard rock band. Everybody <laughs> called them metal, but Lemmy always considered Motorhead to be a straight-up rock and roll band. And so he had written, a, a, he's deceased now. He died in uh, right around this time of year, John. He died, he was born on Christmas Eve in 1950, wow. uh, in 1945. And he died uh, four days after his 70th birthday in 2015, by the way. Um, but anyway, so he had written an autobiography in 2002 called White Line Fever with a female journalist. I uh, didn't remember her name last time. Want to say it today, Janice Garza, who was a journalist, kind of a rock journalist. Um, anyway, I, I read the autobiography. It was great fun. It was just totally insane. You know, Lemmy was known for for being a uh, kind of a true and very sort of um, a person with a lot of integrity in a, in a way, in the terms of the way he practiced his craft. He was just a hard living, hard drinking, fast running rock and roller and he lived that way kind of unapologetically for all those 70 years and it was pretty interesting to read about his exploits um and some of his points of view in a way he had some very traditional points of view you know that comes from his sort of provincial 
English background. So it's a very interesting book. And if you're a fan of, you know, metal or hard rock or motorhead, it was just sort of indispensable reading, really. I thought it was awesome. I got that book from you, by the way. So thanks for that. And, and uh, so I, I've been reading that recently up till today. And then I just started. So I'm getting ready to start my annual foray into reading Charles Dickens. But I thought I would just jam in really quick. John, you kind of inspired me. We had a thriller episode earlier this year. And then last in World War II, we were talking about Jack Higgins' work, the thriller writer and his book, The Eagle Has Landed. I've been kind of, you know, on, on the fringe, kind of keeping my eyes open for like sort of vintage old school thrillers, paperback thrillers, writers like Higgins or Michael Crichton. So I, I recently was in a used bookstore. I found three of them, two by Jack Higgins and one by Michael Crichton. And I just cracked into a Jack Higgins thriller that came out when you and I were like two or three years old. And it's called A Prayer for the Dying. And I'll probably rip through it in a couple of days. I can't wait. It's going to be a lot of fun. So that's nice. what I'm reading. Nice. And uh, you'd you'd mentioned me. You picked up a few of those old older thrillers. What were the other What were the other two? Just for the many many hundreds listening. Yeah. Well, you know, we were talking about Higgins, so I found some many books by him. But I, I picked out two of them, two earlier ones, um, in his long career. So there was a, pr- a prayer for the dying, and then the other one is called. Uh, um, Oh, what is it? I think it's a brought in dead, brought in dead, which is kind of oh, wow. cool. <laughs> and um, and then I bought an early another great thriller writer was Michael Crichton. We've talked about him before. And I found a really early book he did in the 70s called The Terminal Man. Um, and he was a doctor. And so it, it has something to do with a patient that's having seizures. And then they apply this kind of cutting edge cure from the early 70s with uh unexpected results so it's kind of like a medical brainy if you will thriller so i'm looking forward to all of them yeah that sounds like early michael crichton for sure i'm trying i was trying to remember if i've read that i think we went on this whole run of reading michael crichton after we got introduced to him through jurassic park and then sphere yeah and we enjoyed those books so much that and i think we may have mentioned this on the show before that we kind of like I remember kind of ripping through the whole catalog. You know, he's got that Victorian caper, the great train robbery. He's got a book about the Vikings, you know, ears of the dead. I remember reading Uh all that. But uh, so I suppose I read Terminal Man and all that, but I I really don't remember it. So I don't either. It's going to be fun. Yeah, it'll be like, you know, reading it for the first time. So that's great stuff. And as for, you know, reading about Lemmy, I can't imagine that that just wouldn't be, if you know anything about Lemmy at all. You know, that's got to be both, you know, incredibly funny, but also interesting, as you were saying. I mean, he's got to be one of the most, one of the great iconic figures in rock and roll, for sure. You know, yeah, just, yeah. there's no other figure in rock history quite like Lemmy. So, nope. <laughs> yeah, that's really, that's cool. That's great stuff. Um, and I am, you kind of, you know what I've been reading because we've been talking about it back and forth. I happen to be reading. Oh, I, I don't remember if it was last year, but it's one of your favorite novels in the, in the fast, past couple of years for sure. And it's by an, a writer who's come up many times on this. And, you know, I might as well just say it right now that we are because her name's going to come up later in this episode. So I'm, I'm just going to call an audible and say right now we are we have made plans to have one of our um, uh, dealer's choice episodes, a deeper dive kind of episode dedicated to this writer named Annie Perule who's come up um, or Prue actually is the way that you supposedly the way that you pronounce it. Annie Prue 
she's come up on this on this podcast many times before. Um, we've talked about her Wyoming stories. We talked about other books, shipping news, and I'm reading her uh, most recent novel, which is I think came out. Oh, it's got to be seven or eight years ago now. Um, but it could be argued that's her magnum opus. It's 700 pages. It's called Barkskins. It's about uh, men and women who work in the lumber industry, lumber and timber, over over the course of about 350 years. Uh, it's an incredible book, and I'm I'm kind of routing third base, heading towards home. So I'm about on about page 550, and it goes up to just over 700 pages. So this mm-hmm. is just it's just a sweeping panoramic novel about kind of about deforestation. If, if you wanted to you put one word to it, but of course it's so much more than that. It becomes kind of a history, an interesting way to look at history, the history of North America from like the late 17th century up till present times. But then it also goes to different parts of the globe. It's just incredibly vast and sweeping. If you go back to our go big and go home episode on big books, you know, uh, this would have fit perfectly in that in that episode for sure. Um, but I, I won't say too much about it because we are planning on dedicating an episode to her work. So uh, I'm going to go into it a lot more. And I'm sure you will, too, when we when we record that episode, which um, will probably be sooner rather than later. Then, you know, all about the book anyway. But um, just give you a second to make a, your own comment about it, because I know how much you love Barkskins. Yeah, I love that. That's a magnificent book. And I, I yeah, I, I plan to talk about it more on that episode. But I just think I, I agree with you. Obviously, I do. But Annie Pruel is really worth digging into. And we talked about her a few times, but uh, she has a lot of amazing work. And it's going to be, I think, a really rich uh, dealer's choice episode. I would encourage anybody who has not read her or, you know, I was read a little of her to tune in for that episode because it's going to be it's going to be lively. It's going to be good. But I'll just leave it there. Yeah. And I I don't know if you know this or not, because we haven't talked about it. You probably do just because you keep up with books and, and writers at least as much as myself, if not more so. But I noticed she actually has a new book coming out. Did you know that a new nonfiction book coming out, I think, next year? No, no, I didn't. I, I'm excited to hear about it. I, that's brand new news to me. Yeah, apparently very, very early in her career, she had had a couple nonfiction books um, that I don't know too much about. But I noticed she has a book coming next year that's uh, environmental in in theme. And I guess it's about wetlands. That's about all I know about it. But um, the point reason I bring it up is because she was working. She said she worked for 10 or 11 years on this book, Barkskins. And and it's really. one of the things that makes it really notable, it's, it's as I said, it's about deforestation um, and kind of the effects of, you know, cutting down all these trees over the last three, 400 years and what that's done to the world and, you know, the intersection between environmental concerns and, you know, essentially capitalism and profit. And so she obviously took a huge deep dive into that. And I think she's always been sort of an outdoors woman and you know, uh, a, a person who has lived outdoors and, you know, is interested in environmental themes. But I guess she really dove deeply into it because her next book coming out is is a straight up nonfiction book about wetland environments. So that's about all I know about it. But I think that should be really interesting. But just to listeners or readers who are interested in, in, in environmental themes or in nature or in what's happening to the earth, 
that's another reason to recommend bark skins uh, because it's it's uh, it really without being too heavy handed or political, it really kind of goes into the effect on a grand scale, on a broad scale, kind of like taking a few steps back and looking at the impact basically on humanity of humanity and this part of the world, North, North America. So that's, that's really interesting stuff. But anyway, a lot more on her coming later. If you, if you follow this podcast and you have any interest in Annie Prue, you know, there's going to be more coming down the, uh, coming down the pike about her. So that brings us up to, I think our first break, let's just take a quick break. And then we're going to, we're going to talk about our lists kind of in general. And then what we thought we would do um, is kind of focus on, a few books in particular on both sides, but I'll explain that in a second. Sound good? Yep, that'll work. Let's do it. And it is time to get into our best books of the year lists. One for Jude Joseph Lovell, one for John Lovell. And um, I think I didn't I didn't tell you this ahead of time. But I think this we talked about how, you know, we, we each make and 10 is just an easy round number. You know, that's just a number that critics use, you know, a top 10. The way we approach it, I want to say a couple things. First of all, in my case, anyway, I, I, I have 10 books that made my list for 2021. They're not an order for me. So you could swap it around in any particular order. It doesn't matter. This is not a ranking between 10 and one. It's just to say that this is sort of the top tier of my favorite books that I read for the year. So that's number one. Number two is that as ever, anybody who listens to this show knows, it's kind of like an unwritten rule that, you know, we tend to read broadly and widely, both in terms of subject matter and chronology. So Unlike other sort of top 10 lists you hear around the end of the year, this is not this is not limited to books that were just released in the past calendar year. This covers whatever we may have read. So it could be from any time frame. It could be on any subject. It could be fiction, nonfiction. It could be plays. It could be poetry. It doesn't matter. You know, we take kind of a much a broad, holistic view of reading on this show. And so it's, it's literally just what were the 10 books and this is, you know, I'm speaking for me, but I'll let you kind of explain your own list in a second. But, you know, what were the 10 books that, like we said before, that just have stayed with me the most, you know, made, made the biggest impact on me, had me thinking the most, or I just enjoyed the most. So it's like, you know, don't put any parameters on it in terms of, you know, when they came out or whether they're in print or not or anything like that or where they're from. And also, uh, you know, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, whatever kind of genre, it doesn't matter. For me, it's all just like a, my lists are always kind of a, a, a bouillabaisse of, of books from all over the all over the globe, sometimes literally. So that's how I put mine together. So I just thought, you know, why don't you take a, a minute or two to kind of comment on your own list and how you put it together? Well, uh, so I have been keeping a, a log of the books that I read, like a hard copy log 
since uh, like around 1996. But the first wow. few of those were on little scraps of paper. I have a couple of them and then a few I lost for a little while. There's one journal that I got on a business trip and uh, I've been keeping a log steadily in that journal getting near the end of it since 2001. Um, so that I just have that with me and I always just record the books I read. I just put down the title and the author and um, you know, and the month that I finished reading it, I just, I don't know why I do that. So that's what I use to make my lists, you know, and, and I, I can't remember exactly when we started. It hasn't been, the whole way. I want to say, well, speak for me. I want to say for me, it was somewhere around like maybe 2008 or nine. I started making top 10 lists that I can recall. And then uh, what I do is I basically just really quick, I go back through the list and, you know, the, the log I just mentioned, and I kind of just kind of intuitively look at it and see which one sort of stuck out to me. And sometimes it's very obvious like which my top two or three favorites are. And sometimes it's not. And then uh, I, unlike you, I do make them, I count them down from 10 to one. And I like that process. I almost more frequently than not the last, the top two or three are kind of a, a surprise. Like I, I just do this kind of gut thing. I'm looking at the list and then I start trying to fiddle around and say, which one of these is usually make a long list of about 15 or so look at it, strike a few off. And then I, I kind of say, well, which one is sort of last place? I just start from there. And then when I get to the top two or three, you know, I'm sort of just winnowing it down and I look at the ones that are left. And, you know, in some years it really sticks out to me. Like I know right away what my favorite book is going to be, but more often than not, I end up kind of surprising myself. And I just look at the books that are left and I say, you know what, this one just rose above everything else. I just remember it the best or, you know, yeah. I'm kind of surprised about that. So it's kind of a, for me, it's it's sort of a more more often than not making the list is a little bit of a discovery process for me. And then yeah. the last thing I would say is just uh, I think it was like I want to say four or five years ago. Maybe it's more than that. But at some point, I the lists were taking me a long time. I know yours take a while. And yeah. I, I'm, unlike you, I, I usually had you know if I was lucky, I was working on other writing projects, and I was sort of dissatisfied with how long they were taking, you know, I wanted to work on some other things. So I decided one year, I was like, well, let me just try to, I'm going to impose a one sentence, you know, uh, limit on my book list. And cause we usually put some kind of prose around each book was why we chose it, you know, or what stands out or what the book, you know, what was good about the book. And I limited it to one sentence. And now I put this list out with one sentence, which is a, Fun exercise is kind of difficult, but the, almost every one of them is a colossal run on <laughs> because I, I, I don't always know how to limit it to one sentence, but it's fun to kind of impose a discipline to make the list that way. And I actually think that helps me with my other writing, you know, so especially writing for the magazine. So uh, anyway, that's so my list. My process is different, but we still end up with top 10 lists and we we really love sharing them and, you know, kind of compliment each other complimenting each other on what we've read and our the write-ups themselves you know yep that's it so uh you're always talking about how the sausage gets made so there's a little bit there <laughs> about how how we're making the the old sausage here on the on the book exchange at least for these lists so yeah and john know. sorry to interrupt you but like and i always find it really interesting how different our processes are 
like John's lists are very different. They're often like they, they go deeper, you know, and they, they, and he sometimes really comes up with these whopper summations or like, you know, why it was like so appealing to him. And you just kind of, you just kind of learn from it. You know, we're always learning even about each other's reading habits and what we're into. So it's fun. It is fun. And I thank you for that. But I agree, you know, like our, our, our processes are a little different, but it also, as we've said on this show many times, kind of reflects our different priorities or sort of reasons for reading. Like, Cause I'm yeah. convinced anybody who's like a, a quote unquote serious reader, you know, there are motivations and reasons for it that they maybe wouldn't necessarily be able to articulate or haven't taken the time to, to think about, but they, I'm convinced they're kind of, you know, uh, woven into what it is, you know, that you're really interested in in your life, (laughs) you know. Uh, In your case, obviously, that's writing is such a big part of your life and such an important, you know, sort of part of your calling that that tends to influence the way you read. And anyway, we've talked about that before. I think Without further ado, I think it's time to actually crack into our lists. And and this is what I thought I would do. So I, I'm running this by you for the first time, but I'm pretty sure you'll be amenable to it. But, you know, when you talk, of course, when you talk about a top 10 list, I think most of us, if I were listening to the show, I would want to know what the full top 10 list was. But we, we don't have time to kind of talk about every every book, obviously, on both of our top 10 lists with any length. So, and as well... It, a couple of the books that will come up on both of our lists have been, have come up on the show previously. So there's kind of all that is sort of in the mix. But I thought what we would do is we go quickly through through our entire lists, each of us, and then and and just kind of do that quickly so people can at least hear what was on the list and maybe a couple comments about the books. But then we're each we've each chosen a couple different books that have not been discussed in depth on the show previously this year to kind of get into a little bit more why, you know, we, we felt so strongly about the book. So, and the way I thought we could do that just to kind of, you know, keep it, mix it up a little bit is I was going to ask you to, to, to hit on, you know, number 10 through six on your list and kind of go through that. And then I'll go through, you know, the first half of my list and then we'll just kind of trade back and forth until we've gone through our lists. And, I don't know if you, because you're, you're already done and they were one sentence, you know, you could choose to read those if you want, or you could just kind of make a comment on them off the cuff. But how does that sound? Does that seem like a good way to go through this? Yeah, absolutely. I'll follow your lead. Yeah. So that works for me. So to start, I'm going to ask you to cover the, the, the bottom, you know, quote unquote, the bottom half of your list of your 10 favorite books from 2021. And you can choose whether you want to read, you know, the write up the sentence that you already wrote or you just want to make a comment on them. It's up to you. Well, I'm going to choose choice B because I don't have the list with me. Um, okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't have the printed list with me with the write ups. Um, I've got I've jotted down what the titles are. But yeah, but I'll just make a very brief statement about each one. So you said 10 through six, right? Right. OK, here we go. So for me, number 10 was extraterrestrial colon the first sign of intelligent life beyond earth and that was written by a man named avi loeb and it's basically an examination of an event that happened in 2017 when 
uh, and this has come up on the podcast before, but when a, a piece of material floated through our atmosphere that looked like it could have been an asteroid or a meteorite, but upon further examination, it had none of the qualities of those things. And therefore, there was a very compelling case to be made that it was the first visit of some sign of intelligent life from beyond Earth. And it's a study of that happenstance, and then it expands outward from there. Number nine is called Walking with Ghosts. It's written by an Irish actor named Gabrielle Byrne, who's been in a lot of stage and screen productions. And it's an unusually lyrical and I thought kind of beautiful memoir that doesn't sort of truck in the usual Hollywood scandalous fare. Number eight was The Song Lines by Bruce Chatwin. We discussed this a few episodes ago. Um, I don't know how you even can exist in one sentence, but it's a tra- The Song Lines is, is a travel narrative. Um, it begins as a travel narrative um, with the famous travel writer Bruce Chatwin exploring the Australian outback and specifically looking for um, these passageways, these ancient passageways that were made by the Aborigine people, the ancestral people living in that part of the world. And it ties into the mythology behind behind these labyrinthine passageways that has to do with their tradition of the ancient people singing the world into existence. And it expands outward into sort of a, a more of a narrative about who we are, why we have wanderlust and why we're here. Number seven is called The Reason for the Darkness of the Night. Edgar Allan Poe and the Forging of American Science. It was written by somebody named John Tresh, and it's part biography and part part literary biography and part examination of Edgar Allan Poe's writings and his relationship with the scientific community. And number six is called The Five Wounds. It's written by a woman named Kirsten Valdez Quaid, and it's a gritty novel set in New Mexico. Over you. No, those are great, great job. Those are great summations of those, you know, really interesting books. So I'm not going to comment on each one because the reason I I want to make sure that listeners who are interested hear the full top 10 list. So that, so this portion of the show is just so it's just that is just to make sure that everyone knows what was on our list and are able to hear it and can track down anything that they think sounds interesting to them. So it's, it's more a presentation to our listeners and less, of an exchange in this part, in this part of the cool. episode, that, that makes sense. So I'll go into my, you know, number 10 through six. And again, not really in any order. Uh, the first one uh, on my list is the novel Via Negativa by Daniel Hornsby. Um, that we certainly have talked about at length on the show. In fact, episode 26 of the Book Exchange podcast was, was dedicated entirely to that novel. It was a review of that novel. It's a debut novel about a priest who... Uh, leaves his parish and is sort of, you know, uh, aimless and homeless and decides to set up his beat up Toyota Camry as kind of a traveling monk cell. And he heads west from the Midwest. He starts heading west. He has a purpose in mind for where he's going, but that sort of gradually is unfolded as the book goes on. And this is sort of a really interesting kind of like combination between like sort of a spiritual quest and a road novel through, you know, various parts of what I would call weird Americana. He stops at all these interesting, strange sites along the way. Um, 
and then uh, may or may not be sort of a revenge tale as well. So it's an interesting mix of elements. I thought it was a really searching and earnest and at times profound novel um, that certainly doesn't shy away from spiritual themes, but also has a lot of wry and sort of quirky humor. I really enjoyed Hornsby's books a lot, Hornsby's novel a lot. And um, you know, I'm looking forward to whatever he does next. So that's Via Negativa. Next one on my list is called The Wayfinders, Why Ancient Wisdom Matters in the Modern World by a man named Wade Davis. Wade Davis was, among other things, in the explorer in residence for the National Geographic Society for like 30 years. I mean, oh. if you need a resume, <clears throat> excuse me, um, my throat is scratchier than usual today. So if you need a resume that would back up your bona fides, provide bona fides for you as an explorer of the world, you can't get any better than Wade Davis. He's traveled. He has degrees in uh, anthropology, ethnobotany, and um, world cultures. You know, he's been all over the world. But in this book, which you know, I'm going to talk about more in a minute, <clears throat> um, he he kind of is basically reviewing, you know, various indigenous populations and kind of what their contributions have been to the world and uh, how we can learn from their ways of looking at the world. I thought it was utterly fascinating. I learned about many uh, native populations around the world that I didn't know anything about. And it was just, you know, I thought it was totally eye-opening and intriguing. The next book is Exhalation. It's a collection of stories by Ted Chang, who is uh, an Asian American writer. This is only a second collection of stories. I guess he's, you know, sort of lazily classified as a science fiction writer. He's written two books of stories, as I just mentioned. One of his short stories was a basis for the uh, excellent science fiction film Arrival from a few years ago. And this is just an utterly, you know, <laughs> a mind shredding and profound collection of, of uh, scientific, you know, slash philosophical stories that go in all kinds of directions. I'm going to talk about that more later, too. It's just an incredible book. Um, the next one is Fragments of an Infinite Memory, My Life with the Internet, uh, by a, a Frenchman named Mayal Renoir. Um, I've, I mentioned this one on the podcast a few times, and it's a book just kind of about the ways in which our modern technologies like GPS, like Google, you know, algorithms, what have you, are kind of how they affect us in the way that we remember things and the ways that we sort of live our interior lives. I thought it was a really interesting topic to take on. And I, you know, it's, it's, it's quirky and it's unusual. And sometimes it's meandering, but I thought it was, I thought it brought up some really, really interesting questions. And then the last one for this half of the list is a, is a book called The Mission written by David W. Brown, which is about space exploration. And more specifically, it's about, uh, a group of scientists who decide, who realize that maybe the best chance for discovering life within our, the confines of our solar system are on uh, a moon of Jupiter called um, Europa. And so this is kind of a chronicle of how they kind of came to determine this and um, tried to find funding in order to be able to explore th this moon and kind of a quixotic quest to be able to actually send spacecraft there to explore this moon to see if there's life there. And it's just a fascinating account of space exploration that uh, I, it's a long kind of meaty book, but I was riveted to this book the whole way. So 
those are my first five. Well, those are wild. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more about, you know, one or one or two of them, perhaps. Nice job. So I'll just dive back in. Number five for me, Clara and the Sun is a novel written by Kazuo Ishiguro, who is a Nobel Prize winning novelist from England of Japanese descent. And it's a brief novel about something called an AF, an artificial friend set, you know, in the near future. Um, who is assigned to a, or what is believed to be a terminally ill teenage girl, and how this AF plans to assist her with navigating through life. Um, number four for me is kind of is a little bit self-explanatory. The book is called Challenger, a major malfunction, a true story of politics, greed, and the wrong stuff, written by a Washington area journalist named Malcolm. McConnell. It was one of the earliest published accounts of what happened to the space shuttle Challenger in January of 1986, a work of reportage. Number three for me is a novel called Night Boat to Tangier, written by the highly talented Irish novelist and short fiction writer Kevin Barry. And it's a short novel that puts two aging Irish gangsters together in a port in the south of Spain, waiting on the titular night boat, which may contain or may not contain the daughter of one of the two gangsters. Number two for me is another Irish novel. It was called Solar Bones by a writer I had never heard of before named Mike McCormack. And it's kind of a all, all in one Joycean monologue of sorts of a, a civil engineer who happens to be dead and he's sitting at his kitchen table. And number one for me to go back to um, Annie Prue, Prue, her first set of Wyoming stories, which impress you so much and our listeners to this podcast will have heard of. It's called Close Range, colon, Wyoming stories. And it contains a, a whole grouping of searing short works of fiction, including the celebrated short tale, Brokeback Mountain. So that rounds out my list. Back to you. All right. Well, we'll just keep it going because uh, interesting, interestingly enough, in my in my next five, um, you just mentioned Annie Prue. The second volume of her Wyoming stories, which is called Bad Dirt, made my list. So I'll just transition into it. You just mentioned the first one, Close Range which um, I read, I think, last year. and made my top list last year and, you know, really went nuts over and, and, and then ended up giving to you. And I'm really glad that you read it and, and, and loved it. And so I went into the second volume, you know, with high anticipation this year. And the second volume is, is different in tone. It's more, I would say they're quirkier. They're a bit more humorous. And they read... A lot of them read like kind of like tall tales from the West, which is interesting. I noticed there's a definite, you know, difference in style and tone between this volume and the previous one. Um, but they still, you know, maintain these incredible descriptions of what it's like to live in Wyoming, both physically and kind of spiritually in a way. I remember uh, one of her lines from one of the stories in Close Range, she's, 
remarked about the landscape, how it evokes a spiritual shudder, which I thought was a great line. Um, that, that is what it's like when you drive through Wyoming for this first time. It's just so vast and wide open. It's just incredible. But uh, Bad Dirt, the stories are, are a little bit, you know, more amusing, I would say. Uh, but uh, this is another just awesome collection from Annie Prue. And uh, that most of them are centered around a, a fictional town called Elktooth that she comes up with uh, in Wyoming and kind of various characters sort of in time between the stories, but really great stuff. Um, the next one on my list is, uh, was a gift from you. This one was one of the most fun books I read this year. You know, we've talked on this podcast before uh, about how we're both fans of horror fiction. You gave me a whole volume of, of, horror stories from all over the globe there's a there's a press called valencourt books and they're relatively new they've only been in existence for a few years but they're one of the first books they put out it's called the valencourt book of world horror stories volume one and i read that this year as a gift from you and this just contained all kinds of weird and wet, wild and whacked out stories from you know, uh, Scandinavia and Africa and Polynesia and South America. I mean, they come from all over. And so the, the subject matter is wildly diverse. A lot of times they draw on sort of like stories and traditions from their own parts of the world. And so it was just a fascinating kind of tour of, of horror fiction that took me all over the globe, really interesting and fun stuff. So I really enjoyed that. Um, there's an, a, a novel called Cockfighter by a novelist named Charles Williford. And he is best known as kind of an, a writer of detective novels. He had this detective named Hoke Mosley who operated out of Florida and wrote a series of successful books. Uh, you, you can actually, he's sort of out of, he's not out of print, but he's kind of fallen uh, out of, you know, popular culture a little bit. Um, but you can find like an omnibus of Hoke, Hoke Mosley stories, but really the book that apparently he worked on the most and was most proud of was this book called Cockfighter, which follows a, an unnamed character. But no, I'm sorry, his name, but um, uh, a character who basically is competing in the uh, competitive cockfighting circles in the American South during like the 1960s. And it's kind of like, and it supposedly was loosely based on the Odyssey, by the way. So it's kind of like this meandering. <laughs> story about this cockfighter who takes his takes his trade so seriously he's actually committed himself to a vow of silence until he wins the coveted medal for cockfighter of the year that's like literally all he cares about is to win this thing but it's really i mean if you have any interest at all in like southern america and kind of like small town rural america this is a really interesting and you know book that doesn't pull any punches about not only the sort of controversial and violent practice of cockfighting, but also the ways it, the ways that it's sort of connected to this nebulous sort of criminal underworld. So it's not for everybody. It's certainly, you know, kind of a seedy book in a way, but it's also rather fascinating how deeply the central character cares about it. And, you know, um, it's almost kind of moving how committed he is to his craft, which you could, you know, take in any number of directions, you know, metaphorically, but really interesting book. And then rounding it out, um, the second to last book is called Interior States. I talked about this on the last episode, actually, because I was in the middle of reading it. It's a book of essays by a young writer named Megan O'Geeblin. 
and I just thought it was really a superb collection. Um, but uh, you can refer back to episode 41 to hear my more more of my thoughts about that. It was, I really it was one of the most intellectually stimulating books that I re- that I read this year. And then finally, the final book on my list is again, you know, it's it's pretty unusual that the same writer appears twice on my list. But Annie Prue did it for me this year. It is the book Bark Skins, which I mentioned before. I'm not even done with it. And I know it was one of, you know, my favorite books or reading experiences of the year. And, um, you know, like we said, I'll have more to say about that when we actually dive more into her work. So that rounds out my list as well. Yeah, I mean, they're great. They're great list and they're greatly diverse from each other, you know. And, uh, you know, I was listening to you uh, working hard to summarize your titles there in a short space. But I'll tell you, John, when you have books like that are called things like Via Negativa, The Wayfarer and Fragments of an Infinite Memory, (laughs) you got your work cut out for you. So it's just very interesting. People can listen to that and see, you know, get a sense of the kind of readers we are, which they sort of know if they've heard the show. But it's just it's cool to listen to. Yeah, it's a great books. I mean, it's all over the place. Yeah, it always is. It always seems to be on this show. But, you know, uh, and that's coming from someone who was able to summarize the book, The Song Lines, in one sentence, which, as you said, <laughs> if you can do that, <laughs> you're a man of many powers because that is just, you know, as I said numerous times on this show, even that that book is unclassifiable. But anyway, I tried. Yeah, <laughs> I think you did it job so let's just why don't we take a break now and then we'll come back and what we're going to do is we're each going to pick a couple books to kind of talk about a little bit more and just sort of recommend to our listeners so we'll take a break come back and get that started and and you're going to be on on deck so be prepared all right i'll try to prepare all right great All right, Judah, I assume you can hear me well enough? I can. Now, what is the first book that you'd like to go in go in depth into a little bit more and kind of recommend to our listeners from your list of your 2021? Yeah, well, all, you know, so like as we didn't say, all of these would have come up one way or another, talking about what we were going to read or what we just read or whatever. But um, so in a way, you know, if you're a loyal listener, you've heard us talk a little bit about these, but um, for me, the first one, actually, most of the ones I want to talk about are in the top half of my list, except with the exception of this one. So the book I wanted to mention a, a little bit more is uh, the one about Edgar Allan Poe. Again, it's called The Reason for the Darkness of the Night. And then it has a big clunky subtitle, Edgar Allan Poe and the Forging of American Science. The writer's John Tresh, who's a professor somewhere. Of a, I don't remember, but an academic uh <laughs> who did this, you know, long study on Poe and came up with this book. I, I really found this book compelling, but the, what hey, I want to say about it, hey, I'm sorry, not, not to cut you off, but just not to be confused with the great new age pianist and, and former television host, John Tesh. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, <laughs> nope. It wasn't written by John Tesh. You know, he might've done a, uh, you Remember know, that music- guy. Yeah, musical examination of Poe's work at some time. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> no, John Trash is this guy's name. 
And what makes it so interesting, John, and I know you would find this interesting, is because, like, you know, and books are doing this a lot these days, but and sometimes it doesn't work. You know, like a lot of books that are stand standing out to people tend to sort of mash up different different genres or, you know, uh, different kinds of book at once. And sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, I wouldn't want to have a mashup in everything I read. But the, this one is kind of a mashup that's very interesting to me. It's sort of part literary biography, which I love, you know, because we always talk about how I like how the sausage is made and stuff. And uh, and it, but the other part is kind of I would describe it, like I said before, it's like it's it's, it's about the scientific community in the United States at a particular time, like the first half of the 19th century and kind of what was going on in it and Edgar Allan Poe's relationship to it both as a literary figure and as kind of like just a thinker. And I found that really interesting. So it's like, it works as a biography um, and it covers the major highlights of his life, but it also has this emphasis about his, I would say his sort of evolving and the development of his uh, sort of way of thinking and scientific um, ruminations that he kind of had going on all the time. <clears throat> alongside of him. And this was in the span of a very short life because he only lived to, I think he was like around the age of 40 when he died. So the, the book begins, it sort of begins at the end. So right before Edgar Allan Poe died, he gave this like what was perceived as like kind of a stunning lecture in New York City. I forget, it had like a name to it and I forget what that is. You'd have to check it out in the book, but it was basically about the origin of the universe. And he had floated this theory that he came up with himself he was not trained as a hard scientist or like astronomer or anything like that. You know, he studied um, engineering at West Point before dropping out. And then he had a whole sort of literary education. But towards the end of his life, he was getting more and more interested in science and he came up with his own the whole universe. And he floated it out to the New York scientific community in this big lecture. And, you know, you, you remember that you know, we're talking, you know, there's no Twitter, no TV, no, no movies, no nothing. I mean, this was like one of the major forms of entertainment, you know, going to see somebody talk in a crowded theater in New York City. So it begins, the book begins with that. And then it goes back to the beginning of his life and traces his kind of literary development and his sort of tragic life. And then creeping along in the book, it sort of examines how he got more and more interested in basically hard science. And it parallels with the, the, the scientific story of the, from the United States in particular of how uh, science was advancing and the kind of discussions that were happening between the leading thinkers of the era. So I would just say, you know, to, I'm not going to go on any further, but just Edgar Allan Poe is so famous for, you know, his literary works and for being kind of like a, a foundational writer in the area of like horror, macabre stories, you know, dark tales, etc. But he had this whole parallel intellectual life and the way that one fed the other and, and vice versa. All of it makes for a very interesting nonfiction book. And I just like the way he paced it. He's got these short chapters and it was really fascinating. So that, that I'll leave it there. Yeah, that, that's, you know, that to me, that's why, you know, we put together lists like this, because ever since you mentioned that book to me, you know, I thought for me personally, it just really sounds like a book that I would really like to read, you know, that kind of like 
combination of literary stuff and also scientific knowledge, you know, I thought is a really interesting and kind of unusual combination. Um, so, you know, listeners or readers who are interested in both, you know, literary history or maybe Poe himself, but also maybe of a scientific bent, bent or interested in science, you know, would probably find something to chew on there. And it also, you know, it, just as you mentioned, you know, we don't, you know, however Poe's reputation has come down to us, he's, you know, you don't, you tend to associate him with sort of macabre tales and weird tales and stuff like that, horror stories or, you know, quote the Raven, Nevermore and all that. Uh, right. You don't really learn about that side of him and, or even know that he had this sort of, you know, real scientific, you know, sort of intellectual hunger, you know, that, uh, that just sounds like a really interesting combination. So I didn't know anything about that book before you brought it up. And now, you know, I have it on my radar. So thanks for that. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a really uh, unusual pick. So <clears throat> the first book I'd like to talk about just about, about just a little bit more was this book I mentioned earlier called The Wayfinders by Wade Davis. Um, uh, this is one of the most interesting books that I read all year. And, and it, it feels like one of the more valuable books that I've read in a long time, which is not to say that I've absorbed all the wisdom and everything that's in it. Um, but, you know, even the blurb on the back, it says, you know, the first thing on the back jacket says, every culture is a unique answer to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and to be alive? You know, to me, like that kind of gets, that kind of reels me in right there. Um, yeah. Project, one reason why I really, so Wade Davis is, I've mentioned he was a, he's like the equivalent of like, like modern day equivalent of like some of the golden, quote unquote, golden age explorers, you know, from long ago. Uh, and I realize they're not without their controversies, but people like, you know, um, uh, Columbus or, you know, uh, Cook or um, Magellan, you know, just kind of traveling the entire globe to see what may be out there. Um, but he's also, I guess he's best known because he wrote a book called The Serpent and the Rainbow, which was made into a movie by Wes Craven, as we were we talked about earlier this year. But that was a really kind of interesting and kind of mind-expanding study of like voodoo culture in Haiti. I mean, this guy... What I really appreciate about this book, The Wayfinders, it's kind of the fruit of his decades and decades of traveling the world, but not just traveling, staying in remote areas and really studying. You know, he kind of committed himself to really understanding the cultures of these places, the language of these places, and kind of the mythology and sort of cosmology. And this book is sort of a compendium of some of some of what he's learned in his lifetime of of learning and traveling and it's really you know fascinating stuff <clears throat> i mean this book and it's based on by the way uh the book is kind of based on a series of lectures he gave he's from canada so uh in 2009 they're called the massey lectures and it was expanded into a book in which he was basically just sharing his you know experiences from traveling all over and the value, the value of these cultures and traditions. And I, you know, I have to say like the, the very first chapter, which is called season of the Brown hyena. This book has some, <laughs> of course, all the titles. Oh, it's awesome. All the titles are from, you know, drawn from traditions like, you know, 
around the world, but it only has it has these five long chapters, which are called Season of the Brown Hyena, The Wayfinders, Peoples of the Anaconda, Sacred Geography, and then Century of the Wind. So it's just, you know, just from a writing point of view, even it's really beautiful stuff. But you crack open the book that literally the first, there's a quote to begin the very first page. It says, I want all the cultures of all lands to be blown about my house as freely as possible. Be blown off my. F and the quote is from Mahatma Gandhi. And I, you know, I was just like, I was sold immediately just by reading that one quote from Gandhi. I thought that that's just an incredible piece of wisdom in itself. Uh -huh. You know, this idea of wanting to, and here I get a little bit more serious, but this idea of wanting to absorb the collective wisdom of humanity. You know, we come from this tradition of like, quote unquote, Western civilization. And that's what you learn about when you're raised in the United States or England, or, you know, you learn about, you know, Western expansion. And you come to learn later, it's such a small part of the world story. There's so many other traditions and cultures and kind of ways of looking at the world and just the unbelievable hubris of Western society sometimes. And, and there are a lot of gifts from Western society too, of course. And I'm proud to be from America and I'm in, in some ways I'm proud to be part of that tradition, but there is so much more beauty and truth to be found in other cultures. And this book really dives into that in just a fascinating way. And I, it was just so, you know, I don't care if I'm in my fifties. It was just so valuable for me to kind of learn about these other cultures. I don't know what applies and what doesn't, you know, to, my life now as a, you know, middle-aged guy on, in the middle Atlantic region of the United States, but it's certainly worth mulling over and worth learning about. And, um, you know, there's so many passages from this book that I can read, but, uh, you know, I don't, I wouldn't even know where to pick, but um, it's just kind of a beautiful and really value, valuable compendium of, of learning from traveling all over the world and spending significant time with other cultures, learning their traditions, learning their ways, and just kind of, you know, opening our eyes as sort of quote unquote Western readers to what we can learn from them. Some of the, some of the different, I'll just end it here, but you know, uh, one of the chapters he spends, he, he spends time talking about the cultures of Polynesia. And these are cultures by the way that navigated like all over, you know, they spread from what's, you know, Indonesia into like Africa, all the way down to Australia. They navigated more than 50% of the globe, 10 centuries before Christ. So how did, <laughs> wow. how did they know? And they did it repeatedly. They knew how to get from, you know, Indonesia to Australia or New Zealand. How did they do that? We don't know. But obviously there's an incredible amount of learning and, you know, that goes into that. You know, so there are other chapters on civilizations in you know, deep in the in the Amazonian region and in the Andes. And then he does spend time, as you just mentioned, with with um, on the aboriginal peoples there and this concept of the dream time. There's just so many fascinating cultures around the world. And to me, this was just just a rich stew that I just enjoyed so much kind of diving into. So if you have any interest at all in different cultures around the world. This book, The Wayfinders, I would say it's a must. Yeah. I mean, it just, that sounds like a whole, 
a whole range of experiences within the covers of one book. You know, that's the kind of book that you go go for. But it's like, yeah, like, you know, to, to be very useful for broadening your context and understanding of the whole world, you know, you know, yeah. it's, it's just incredible, incredible stuff. Yeah. Okay, so it's my turn. Yep. All right, so the next one for me I wanted to bring up again is called Clara and the Sun, um, which is by, again, Kazuo Ishiguro, Ishiguro, who um, his parents were Japanese, and I believe he was born in Japan, I think, but he em emigrated with his parents to England and was raised in sort of London and sort of, uh, well, I'm not sure if it was London, but like, you know, Western society, England. And so he's this interesting man who, has, you know, is Japanese by descent, but talks with this soft-spoken English sort of upper-class sounding accent. And um, just that right there makes him kind of a, a, fa a fascinating mix of <laughs> different, you know, perspectives and cultures. And, and he has a very celebrated career as a novelist. Um, he's best known for The Remains of the Day, which was made into this movie with uh, Emma Thompson and Anthony Hopkins. And for another book of his that was made into a film called Never Let Me Go, that was sort of like a little bit science fiction-ish, which is also the case with Claire and the Sun. And so what I want to say about, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with all Ishiguro's work. I, I, it, I've only read three or four of his books. Like I said, he won the Nobel Prize and he's had this uh, great career as a literary novelist you know, there's not a whole lot that I can add to it, but what I would say about this book is um, it's really, it struck me as a, really a bravura performance of literary craftsmanship. So when you read a book by Kazuo Ishiguro, and he has a lot of different books in a lot of different styles, but he, he writes very elegantly and he tends to write very crisply, you know, economically. And he may have some books that are longer. I, I think he does. But, you know, where he's his most celebrated books are kind of more, you know, compact and sort of lyrical. Um, and in this book in particular, he sort of wastes no time and space. But, it you know, so if you if you read like uh, some of you know, like a well-known Irish writer or different writers from around the world that are more maximalist style, you know, you get a lot of effusive language and colorful imagery and a lot of humor and stuff. This book isn't like that at all. This is a very brief and compact book that is limited in its sort of range of emotions and colors. And what's so interesting to me about it is that it's it's got to be that way because it, what he does in this story is that he puts you, the story is told. Sorry, I have some sirens out here outside my window that you might be able to hear. Um but anyway, the novel is told from the point of view of the titular character of Clara, who's artificial. So she's uh, you know, like a cyborg, you know? So by necessity, it's very limited in color and emotion, you know? But he does a magnificent job of putting you into her brain, artificial brain, for the entire scope of the book. <clears throat> and then what happens is she's, you know, in the the novel opens with her in a, in a store really similar to like an Apple store, you know, in the city and patrons come in and, and she's with other AFs, artificial friends, 
is a term used in novels. She's waiting to be selected, kind of like, uh, you know, it's like the um, Paddington or something or the Velveteen Rabbit or stories where, you know, like, like a, a toy is, you know, waiting to be picked by a real human or whatever, right? And so she's chosen eventually by a, a young teenage girl who has a potentially terminal illness. And the novel circulates around her going to live with this girl and being her sort of permanent friend, artificial friend. And as it progresses, it we learn more about her illness. And then um, Clara begins to perceive and, and deduce and figure out because of how well she's made a way that she can assist with the healing or the health of the girl that she's been chosen by. And so that's kind of how, what, what the plot circulates around. I wouldn't want to say too much more than that because it would give things away. And then, you know, at the end, you, you can't kind of spoil the end, but yet you, you have to be aware of the fact that, you know, things sort of move on as they do with human beings, but they don't move on in the same way with an artificial being. So at the end of the book, she, she ends up in a different place, but she still has, you know, she doesn't have like, you know, these reflective, uh, you know, ruminations or anything like that. She's just, you know, she's sort of outdistanced the, the pace of events in the novel and she ends up in another place with an indeterminate future. So I just thought that the book was magnificently written. It's very brief. It doesn't waste a lot of time and energy, but it tells this fascinating and thought provoking story about this um, artificial friend who's sort of accumulating knowledge and it leads to a greater awareness as the story goes on. And it's just fascinating. So, the, the, and I think I, I think I ended my last summation that way by saying it was just fascinating, but it's a really, it's a really interesting novel, thought provoking. Well, two for two sold again. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a book I would love. I would love to read. I've, I've read Ishiguro a couple times before you mentioned remains of the day, which I didn't think I was going to like, but I, it was actually my favorite book of that year. You might remember, which you yeah. talked early on about how, when you're doing these lists, you kind of surprise yourself. Remember that year, I think it was two years ago or two or three. I had read that book and it just stayed with me. Something about it, that character study about that butler. And at the end of the year, I realized I, I, I didn't read any books that were better than that one. You know, so that really sort of surprised me. And then I just did, uh, I think it was last year I read, you know, he wrote that sort of strange book called The Buried Giant, which was, took place in England, but it was more of a, in the medieval times. And it was about this sort of like, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of hard. It's, it's, it's hard to explain, you know, these kind of medieval uh husband and wife and they uh live in this land where there's this kind of strange sickness where people are slowly losing their memories you know it's just a very, really sort of unusual and interesting story but for him so those two books are wildly different and for him to apply himself to this whole idea of artificial intelligence and and robotics and all that it's just fascinating and i think um like you said fascinating and I think, and this is just interesting to note, you know, uh, I think, um, you know, the former president, Barack Obama, puts out his list of his favorite books every year, which is interesting to see because he reads very far and wide. The book was on it, Claire and the Sun. I might be wrong. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, so that's just kind of interesting to know, too. But, you know, this is, that, that book sounds really interesting. I, I, if I had that in my hands, I'd probably pick it up and read it tomorrow, you know. 
And by the so, way, John, I don't mean to interrupt because I know you're getting to your next book, but I just have to say, like, you know, on the on the subject of Barack Obama's list, I think yeah. it's so interesting that he puts that list out every year. But it kind of frustrates me. I know I'm going to like annoy people by saying this, but I've noticed it. And I, I feel like I'm not I wasn't a great admirer of Barack Obama as as a president, just politically speaking. But I've always thought that I would sort of be interested in him as a person because he has such a fascinating story. Oh, and yeah. he's obviously a bright and articulate person and a heavy reader. But his list of books kind of frustrate me because they're always right in line with all of the top 10 book lists that come out from every oh, newspaper across the country. It's like exact, it's all the buzzy books that they've been talking about all year. And it, yeah. and it rarely varies from that. And I find that a little frustrating, but yeah, anyway, that's neither here nor there. I just got, felt like I had to say that. <laughs> no, I, 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 you know, because they're twins or whatever, I had a very similar reaction to it. I've had a similar reaction. Yeah, you know, they always, it's just exactly what you said. They always seem to be the books that are already being, highlighted and talked about extensively yeah. you know yeah. but i yeah. think if you go back and look there might be some exceptions to that i don't want to you know i haven't really analyzed it and uh you know um but yeah I, it is he's so interesting because he is such a fascinating guy and so well read and so articulate but he's also such a fixture in the culture and so i don't i don't know how to say it he's just so kind of woven into our current culture in weird yeah. ways, he kind of fits there really, really well. And he's obviously just, you know, idolized in our current culture. It's kind of hard to separate the culture from him. But uh -huh. yeah, regardless, I do. What I respect about it is the range. And that goes for his movies and his music as well. He seems to have a, a broad range. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. But go ahead. So it's interesting because there there's some commonalities, some common threads between some of the books that you've picked and some that I've picked, which is strange, you know, like yeah. uh, the Finders was in was about you know wisdom to be gained from primitive, not primitive, that's the wrong word, but native and Aboriginal cultures, and that was obviously a huge part of the book, the Songlines, which made your list, and right. then you just talked about Claire and the Sun, and I feel like that plot, that the ideas in that book would fit perfectly in this book of stories by Ted Chang called Exhalation. Mm. Um, I'd never read Ted Chang before. Um, you know, his, I think he has a, a well-founded reputation, even though he only has two books, but you know, his sort of intelligence and what he writes about and how philosophically and scientifically speculative his stories are is sort of, you know, what he's known for. But man, I was not prepared <laughs> for the stories in this volume called Exhalation. Um, they're some of the most fascinating things I've ever read in any form. I mean, some of the ideas that are yeah. explored in these stories are just, they really kind of stretch <laughs> the boundaries, not only of my mind, but of like the human mind. You know, he... he he, he goes far and wide in terms of really exploring, you know, the ways that technology, there's no way to talk about this without, you know, massively oversimplifying it, but the ways that technology and humanity and intersect and how they affect each other. Um, but combined with it in just an incredible imagination. I mean, uh, the first story I'm trying to give you a sense, give you and our listeners a sense of, you know, 
the scope of his kind of mind and his and his um, imagination. The first story is called The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate. And it's kind of it's a story about time travel. And it's a story about like a portal that um, is in this kind of like curiosity shop that's in like I think it's in Cairo, Egypt. But it's like this like I don't know if you remember that short film that we've talked about before um, where there's a portal, a guy walks through and he goes into kind of another dimension. You know, this, this story has this like circular portal, but it's like set in the, in the Muslim Middle East. And this guy walks into this store and it's kind of in the back of the store, sort of covered with like a tarp. And you walk, you walk through this portal and you're in the same place, but you're in a different time and you can go back and forth. And so you quickly discover that you can go through this portal and you can interact with your either future or your past self. But he also sets it in in Cairo, as I said, and he and and he and I know this because one of the great things about this book is that he has these fascinating notes at the end at the end of the book that kind of describe what went into each story. And after you read these stories, you're going to want to read the notes because the ideas that are being bandied about are just nuts. But, um, you know, he said he had this idea of like combining of writing a time travel story in a different way, first of all. But then combining that with like uh, sort of mixing it with the style of 1001 Arabian Nights, which has this sort of like story within a story structure. So it's like this weird mashup between like a time travel story and like modern uh, Middle Eastern culture and like 1001 Arabian Nights kind of mashed up in the same story in like 30 pages. <laughs> and that's that's the first story and i thought oh my i mean that just the imagination is absolutely unbelievable but there are a lot there are several stories in this collection that touch on artificial intelligence and there's one that's like basically novella length and it's called the life cycle of software objects and it's about these people who work at this you know software company and they create these this sort of like online virtual world uh, but they also create these sort of artificially intelligent robots that exist or they're kind of like creatures. They're like, like a little puppy or penguin or something. And, and you have them in your house or whatever, but they also can like plug into this virtual world online and it becomes this, you know, kind of like long exploration. It's like a weird metaphor for like parenting because as these little AI creatures, they start, they're really cute, but then they kind of get smarter and they learn more about the way the world works and they start challenging their owners and it goes on. It becomes this kind of long thing that, that is really about like the choices you have to make when you're as a parent, when you're raising something or someone and how you get challenged after a while, they start pushing back and making their own decisions, but it's set in this sort of virtual world and it kind of goes back and forth between the real world and this online world. It's just, it's wild, but you know, it should give you kind of some idea of kind of the range and scope of these stories. And some of them are really small and others are like 90 to a hundred pages, but I was just completely dumbfounded by at the intellect and imagination, both that are on display in these stories. Like I, I can't think of another writer who in my, for me scores so highly on both intellectual and sort of scientific and technological concerns and also just the realm of the imagination i mean i 
I gave it to you as one of our exchange selections for our birthday this year. I'll be really interested to to see how you react to it. But I, I was just I was just completely blown away by this collection of stories. So I, I couldn't recommend it more highly. If you're the type of reader who's interested in sort of speculative and science fiction and technology and that kind of thing. So well, John, you veer dangerously close to the Pritchard scale from Dead Poet <laughs> Society as far as assessing a poem there when you mentioned the scale for like creativity and intellect, you know. You gotta yeah, watch out. Right. <laughs> uh so that's a little Dead Poet Society reference for those who know. But anyway, I yeah, yeah. That, I think I think Professor Keating would kick me out of the class. Yeah, I think you'd be I think you'd be out on your ear, yeah. But yeah, no, you uh you see as you mentioned, you gave me that book um this last year and you know, sort of prefaced it with some of the similar remarks to what you were just saying. And uh, man, it, it really, you know, when when John Lovell says, you know, this is some of the most impressive storytelling that I've ever read, you know, you gotta perk up your ears, you know. And uh yeah, I can't wait to read it. I'm, it's probably gonna be sooner than later and I've heard of him and and his books. And I, a couple of times I tried to reserve that book, Exhalation, at the library, and I don't know what happened, but I never got a hold of it. But, um, you know, so much the better because I end up get, receiving it from you. But, yeah, no, it just it sounds like just nuts. And I, I would just love to. And I like the idea, too, of having short stories and then some that are, like, somewhere between a story and a novel. A lot of my short stories tend to be longer. So I like that yeah. he just kind of wrote, um, you know, to the scale that he needed to, you know? Right. And I forgot to say, so there are at least two stories in this collection that are, are basically novella length. So you're right. He doesn't, he doesn't shy away from that. If it needs to be a hundred pages, he just does it. But I, I did want to say just, and this is mainly to you, but just, you know, it, it's not, the writing is good. It's the prose is, is good. I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm damning it with fame praise, but to me, it wasn't about, I don't think you'll be blown away by the writing. You know, huh? I think it's, I think it's serviceable to me. It's all about the ideas and the imagination and the, uh, uh, you know, the ability to kind of like carry these ideas through and really ask some deep and profound questions. You know, that to me was what really made this book stand out. Yeah. That'd be very impressive. So I, I can't wait to read it, but I'll just move on just to keep things going. Yep. So next up for me is, uh, a subject I've talked about a few different times, so I, you know, I don't want to go on for too long. With it. The book's called Challenger, a Major Malfunction, True Story of Pol Politics, Greed, and the Wrong Stuff. So you can tell by the title what that book is about. And then I said earlier it was sort of a work of reportage, basically on the Challenger's disaster. And I've said a few times on here that I you know, saw a documentary on Netflix. I got interested in it. I was writing a short story about one of the people that perished on the Challenger. It really got its hooks in me. But this book, and it's and it's hard to, I debated whether to talk much about this book because the book is out of print. So it's kind of hard to find. You'd have to find it the way I did it, sort of use book sites or whatever. Um, and you can, you know, I didn't pay much for it. You know, it's not like this, you know, historical relic or anything like that. And I don't know how many people, you know, the, the subject would appeal to. But what I did want to mention about it was, first of all, the book just like gripped me so much this year. Uh, for a book that's out of print, you know, and then like, you know, kind of came and went um, on a subject that people feel like they know about, at least people of a certain age, you know, like everybody 
who's over the age of like 40, John, um, or, you know, I guess like, you know, our age, maybe for, I don't know, 40, 45 or whatever, whoever lived through the challenger disaster, you know, enough to be able to remember it, you know, kind of, you know, it's not, it's not an incident that doesn't have, you know, that hasn't been revisited a lot of times in American culture, you know, like people are familiar with it, you know, who are old enough. What was interesting to me about this book is that it, 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 um, well, about the book itself is that it really, uh, goes into great detail about exactly what happened. And that I thought was fascinating. And I'm not, I, I can't hang with hard science, you know, but it was just interesting to find that it was basically a matter of, uh, malfunction of these rubber O-rings that were in the solid rocket boosters, which were the large, um, spherical or like uh, tubular white objects on either side of the space shuttle attached to a huge tank of fuel. And those were all separate from the shuttle. They de- they detached after the shuttle launched, but the two rocket boosters on either side were to get the, basically to get the shuttle into outer space, you know, were filled with all these fuel or gases or whatever the material was, you know, they had these O-rings cause they were constructed out of, you know, pieces of tubing and they had O-rings that were formed to seal in between those pieces and they malfunctioned um, particularly because of the weather conditions on the day of the launch and, you know, and the shuttle exploded. And, um, and Jude, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, um, sure. and maybe you're going to bring this up. So I don't mean to, but you were actually able to go and physically see one of these space shuttles up close, right? Right. Yeah, I did when I was, uh, cause I've recently finished a short story about, I was inspired by one of the astronauts um, that's separate from this story who happened to be sort of killed, not sort of, but killed on the shuttle. But in order, sort of researching that, I found out that, you know, near to where my daughter goes to college, one of the space shuttles is still there, uh, Space Shuttle Discovery, um, which uh, I, I believe preceded Challenger. Um, but you can kind of go see it up close, and I did that. Although it was not attached to solid rocket boosters or uh, the tank of fuel. Oh, you know, yeah, of course. It's just okay. there on its own, of course. But yeah. it was fascinating to look at and just get a sense of how large it was, which is – and I would just say, in a way, it's, like, really huge, but also, like, not as big as you think, you know, when you see it up close. And mm-hmm. I, that was very important to me for me to get a sense of, you know. But anyway, um, so I don't want to say a lot about – I was just really gripped by the book, and not everybody would be. But um, it, it – what it did was it talked about the exact, you know, sort of mechanical scientific reasons why the disaster happened. Then it talked about, it did, you know, this guy was a reporter. So he digged, dug around about who knew what and when. So it got into the politics, not only in Capitol Hill, but also the politics, particularly in this engineering firm called Morton Thiokol, which were the, the people that designed the solid rocket boosters. And as it came, and as it turned out, there were people who knew that, not only that a disaster was imminent, but there were people who on the day of the launch, because the launch was debated, delayed several times, the day of the launch, it was freezing cold, unusually cold for Florida. And they knew without question that the shuttle was going to have a catastrophic event. And they pushed it up the chain and it didn't end up getting, you know, overturned tragically. So reports on all of that. And then, um, and it just gets into also the politics of the NASA and, you know, kind of the cover up that occurred after all of it was really outrageous. 
And uh, it was fascinating to read, but the more you read it, kind of the angrier it gets because Seven, you know, wonderfully talented and uh, just wonderful human beings, you know, lost their lives in this tragedy. And it didn't have to happen that way, you know. So it was really kind of an infuriating book in that sense. And the other thing I just wanted to mention was the book itself, maybe this has something to do with why it's out of print, but the book itself kind of drew fire because it was one of the very first, it came out in 1987. It was one of the very first books that was published about the Challenger disaster. And a lot of people thought that the author of the book didn't fully verify all the things that he was reporting on, you know, enough in the rush to get it into print to be kind of the first one to come out about the Challenger disaster. So that was kind of an interesting aspect to it as well. But it was just a gripping study of why that happened. And unfortunately, some of the very human foibles and um, flaws, you know, that are inherent in the human beings, you know, particularly with politics and bureaucracy and such that led to such a tremendous disaster and loss of life. So that's it. Well, it's fascinating because like I was thinking when you mentioned this book before, I was thinking it's interesting that it had this sort of controversy around it. You know, I can see it on one level because it's just like, I don't know. There's, there's definitely, you, you, you get the sense that there was marketing and, you know, publishing dollars behind it or, you know, machinations at work to get the book out there. And I think you kind of get a hint of that, even with the title, how they play off the book, the right, the popularity of the book, the right stuff. And it's just, yeah. the wrong. I, that always kind of irked me about the title of that book. You know, I didn't yeah. know about the book before yeah. you brought it up, but that is such a clear grab at something else in the, in the culture that you can kind of link it to. And yep. you know, just a little bit gimmicky. And that may be an indication right there of some of the motivation or or at least the drive to get this book out as quickly as they did. So there there might be some merit to that. Very but, good point. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you uh, you got me down the same. So you I think this was all started with you. There's a Netflix series that I think we've mentioned, which is about the Challenger disaster. And you just happened to watch it. And, you know, we were teenagers when that happened. So we were, you know, it was interesting for us because we lived through all that stuff. And But it kind of gives you all the background around not just the people who are on that mission, but, you know, what happened and what might have been the cause and politics around it. And you kind of just got sucked into it. You recommended it to me. I got sucked into it, you know, and I've recommended it to a few other people as well. But it's interesting how... Um, that kind of led you to this book and that even this book sort of led you to your own fiction project. You know, this is the way reading, as we always talk about on this show, this is kind of the value of reading. Sometimes it can take you down these fascinating pathways and rabbit holes that lead you, you know, to a deeper understanding and knowledge of something that you knew nothing about before. So, um, you know, I'm kind of grateful that you kind of brought me along with you because you got me to watch that series. And then I sort of got fascinated with it. So I can totally understand why you decided to read that book. And it's just interesting how that it's continued to, like we said at the top of the show, you know, these the, the books that stayed with us are continued to reverberate across the months that made up 2021. And clearly this is obviously one of them for you in more ways than one, you know? Yeah. It, it, yeah. And we'll move on, but it, yeah, it really got us into me the whole story and you know to the extent that i was that i 
like I said before, I wanted to write about it and I needed to see, like, I, I really felt like I needed to see a space shuttle if I could, you know, and I was real fortunate I was able to. And it was about just putting my eyes on it and seeing things like, you think, you'd think that the space shuttle would be sitting there in a hangar and it would look like this, like, you know, white Mercedes on like the floor of a dealership. No, no, no. This thing is like bas- bashed up, blackened in certain places. You know, like, you know, it's like hammered. It was hammered by the Earth's atmosphere on several journeys into space. So it's just stuff like that. But it's like fascinating how like, um, you know, certain stories just grip you and they just send your imagination running wild, you know, and that's that's the kind of the whole point of all this in a way, you know. Yeah. Well, and again, we didn't plan this, but it's kind of weird how this has worked out because the other the third book and this is kind of the last one for me that I wanted to, you know, tell a little bit more about is also about the U.S. space program. Uh, not just the U.S., it, 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 there are other parts of the world that kind of contributed to this. But it's this book called The Mission by David W. Brown. And, and speaking of like uh, publishing or marketing gimmicks, I don't have time literally to like read the full title of this book, but people should go out and look up this book, The Mission, A True Story by David W. Brown, because it has the title is literally, I would say, 90%. Um, it has this insanely long title, which is just kind of a, frankly, sort of a gimmick. But having said that, I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to diss this book at all. Obviously, it's on my list of, you know, my favorite books of the year. But this this is one of the most fascinating books that I read this year. And um, it, I kind of got to this in a weird way. There's a, there's a the science fiction movie I saw years ago called Europa report, <laughs> believe it or not, people almost never talk about this movie, but I thought it was really interesting. It's about a mission to the moon of Europa, which is a moon of uh, Jupiter. I think I have that right. I think it's Jupiter. Um, yeah. And because there's this speculation that underneath the Europa, there is water. And this is sort of a fictional account of a, ship that takes many, many years to go out there and drill through the ice and then, you know, find whatever they're going to find there in the movie. But I kind of got fascinated by this whole idea. And then, you know, years later, I see that there's a story. Wait, 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 John, John, John. Is it fictional that there's water there or is there actually water there? Well, I didn't really like, you know, the the scientists have 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 speculated that that there has to be water underneath the ice surface of this planet. So that part of it is true. And this book, The Mission, is about an effort to send spaceships out to, you know, uh, explore Europa, you know, in, in, in an effort to find life. And it re- what it does is it goes, it, it becomes this incredibly interesting sort of deep dive into, into, you know, space exploration in general and what it takes to mount and actually deliver on a successful space exploration to, you know, not just to the moon, you know, it talks about our efforts to go to the moon. It talks about the shuttle program, but it also talks about the past efforts we'd made, like the Voyager program. There are two Voyager spaceships that went out to just kind of like explore further out into space. And, you know, it profiles the scientists who passionately believe that a, a, a voyage to Europa is worth is worth investing in, you know, to see if we could discover, you know, to make the case that this is the best 
uh, chance that we have of discovering life on another planet because of the conditions there, how much money it takes, how much science it takes in order to even build a case, you know, to present to NASA. And then you have to kind of, you know, spar with Washington and get the funding you need and kind of, you know, jump through the political hoops you need to. It's this incredibly, you know, challenging ordeal in order even to get the funding to, to mount a mission like this. And this book kind of just dives deeply into all of that, just what it takes to, um, you know, fund and actually engineer and launch, you know, a craft that can go out and explore in the outer reaches of our own galaxy, let alone farther than that. But I, to me, this, this, this was just a very deep and fascinating dive into the whole, uh, you know, apparatus of outer space exploration and how hard it was for these scientists to even convince people that it was worth, you know, trying to send spacecraft to Europa in order to explore it. Um, and it, there were, you know, there are many false starts along the years, you know, but eventually they do procure the funding that they need. And I believe now that there are spacecraft that are on their way, you know, it takes like, that's the other thing, it takes like seven, eight, nine years even to get to, you know, Europa <laughs> and, you know, yeah. all the technical challenges, like how do you, how do you send the data back from that far away? How do you have enough power on board the ship in order to send that data back that will last? And how do you anticipate what the conditions are going to be both around, you know, Jupiter, but also on the surface of Europe? It's just, it's an unbelievable amount of science and speculation that go into that. And this book goes into all of it, you know, from just about every angle, political, human, scientific, technological, you know, almost spiritual even. I just thought it was, it's this incredible work of sort of reportage um, that I just found, it's a long and dense book, but I found it gripping all the way through. And I just learned so much about the space program and the many, many challenges, you know, and, that you have to overcome just to launch one successful mission. It's really something. It's really just an incredible, you know, kind of trip into, into all of that. And I just found it to be one of the most gripping books that I read this year. So I would recommend that to anybody who, you know, is interested in science or interested in space exploration or engineering or, but even more than that, just kind of like quixotic human, you know, uh, endeavors whether they be enterprise, you know yeah yeah human enterprise and kind of you know dreaming as far as you can go and figuring out a way to make it a reality it's just an just an incredible story so i really highly recommend that book and john how old is that book i think it came out it first came out either in 2020 or early 2021 it's it's a recent book okay because yeah when you brought it up, i had never heard of it before you brought it into, I would really like to read that. And it's interesting because, oh. like, you know, um, you're right. It's about even even in the Challenger book, but that book for sure. And also in the book I mentioned in my list that I'm not talking about, extraterrestrial, about the the, you know, the thing that came through our atmosphere. A lot of that book goes into how you would go about sort of, essentially going after something like that, and exploring the universe. Yeah. And you're talking about all these endeavors, and this is like what, uh, you know, I'm patting myself on the back in advance 
for working in this writer, but this is what the great Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush, called and lyricist famously, uh, you know, um, blessed be his memory. <laughs> he called super science in the in the Rush song Countdown about uh, you know the shuttle launch. But anyway, like this is like super science, you know, like the the brains and the and the and it's not just brains and intellectual, you know strength but it's like enterprise and courage you know being willing to push out you know the the borders of what human beings can achieve you know that's the stuff that's behind some of these stories you know and it's just really interesting to you know read about and just sort of marvel at what human beings can do you know yeah, that's well said. It's exactly right because it's this book is as much about humanity as it is about the science. And, you know, it, he also profiles you know several of these scientists. I mean, there's a guy who weaves his way through this book. He spends he dedicates like thirty or forty years of his life to not only just making uh, expedition to Europa happen, but convincing people that it's worth doing. I mean, he basically dedicates his entire life to that. And it's kind of moving at the at, towards the end of the book when he's much, much older. They finally get the funding that they need to do it. And he's able to live long enough to see that, you know, uh, a craft has been launched and sent on its way there. And he, he knows he's not going to live long enough to get the answers that he's been ser- searching for his whole life. But he, may, he helped make it happen, you know, and it's just like... Uh, you know, it's just it's just incredible to think that, you know, so the book also kind of profiles these different scientists and what their background was and how they got to where they were. And, you know, it's just it's really cool stuff. So, yeah, some of these guys are like John the Baptist in a way. They're like the people that came before, you know, like, right. you, know like, you know, it's probably not an apt metaphor, but just interesting that some of these uh, some of these figures and in this area, you know, cause sort of laid down the groundwork for other people to take up and run with it. You know, it's just really interesting. Yeah. Um, and they, thought, and they thought John the Baptist was a wing nut too. So, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> they um, did. All right. I think, I think that's all, I think that, you know, brings us to a close in terms of books that we were going to dive into more deeply, or did you have one more? I have two more. Oh, but okay. um, but I, I I'll tell you what I can I can do it I'll do them both at once because it makes sense and I can do it briefly. So okay. I'll try. Is it is it okay if I do that? Yeah, I think we you know we're rounding towards home, but I think we can we should mention them if you wanted to. Okay, so um, they're both novels and they're both written by Irish uh, male Irish writers. Um, and so the first is called Night Boat to Tangier by Kevin Barry, and the second one is called Solar Bones. By Mark McCormick. Now, what I want to say about Kevin Barry, Night Boat to Tangier, is a great book, which obviously I highly recommend. But Kevin Barry, just in general, I just would tell her anything by Kevin Barry, in my opinion, is worth reading. We're talking about an Irish novelist, and it applies more to Kevin Barry to me than to Mike McCormick, which I'll try to explain in a minute. But with Kevin Barry in particular, which is no knock on Mike McCormack, but my experience of reading Kevin Barry is, is reading a Kevin Barry work of fiction, whether it's just because he's a renowned short story writer and novelist. And I love his novels and short stories. 
if I had to describe it though, in like some, sort of almost like, you know, food terms or culinary terms, when you read one of his works of fiction, the language is like, and I know this is going to be clunky, but it's, it's the only way I can think of it is like, you know, sort of like, they're almost like these, you know, bunches of word caramels that like somebody's, you know, is like feeding into your mouth and they like, <laughs> this is ridiculous, but they like, uh, they have this like mellow warmth and they're sort of delicious and they sort of slowly dissipate. And what I'm trying to say is he has this wonderful gift with language. It's so easy to consume and enjoy. And it doesn't matter what he's writing about. He has this uh, amazing mix of Irish humor and uh, gorgeous lyricism. And he doesn't hang around for too long. And he's just a, a really wonderful writer that to me, I feel when I read Kevin Barry's work in particular, you can feel like, I don't think it's too much to say this, kind of like an ancient storytelling talent that's almost inherent in like the Irish tradition. And that, mm -hmm. that comes out in Kevin Barry's work to me. It's like really easy to not only consume, but enjoy the hell out of. And I find that in all of his work, his works tend to be very funny and kind of rich. And of course, cause they're, cause he's a great Irish storyteller. They have a ample dose of sadness and pathos and sometimes tragedy. And it's all there in his works. And in, in the case of Night Boat to Tangier, I explained before what the story is. It's these two old geezers that are ex-like, you know, uh, gangsters basically are hanging out waiting for this boat to come in that has the daughter of one of them. And they just kind of end up sort of reminiscing about their, you know, the glory days of their being gangsters. That's kind of all you need to know. And there's some interesting and very poignant twists and turns to the to the story and a lot of things are related in retrospect but it's just this wonderful tale written by an absolutely you know phenomenally talented irish writer i'll leave it there with nightboat tangier and then solar bones is different john solar bones you gave me wonderful choice and and it was i had a different experience so and i had never heard of mike mccormick i think he might it might either be his first novel or like his first or second book i think it's just kind of you know still pretty new in the world of fiction, but it's this like continuous monologue. And when I say continuous, I mean, the book has no periods in it. You know, wow. it has, it's the paragraphs are broken up, but there's no period in the entire book. And you don't, and what part of the whole magic of the book to me was that you don't really know what it's on about in a way you got this kind of ruminating running voice and it, and it's just this guy talking a middle-aged guy about his life and he talks a lot about his work as a civil engineer, but he also talks about parenting, about love, the, you know, the story of his romance with his wife, um, his adult children. And you're kind of and at first I was very I found the book borderline tedious, you know, I, I, but not quite. And I was kind of like, you know, why are we just listening to this guy talk? It just doesn't it's not really going anywhere. But for me, there was this cumulative cumulative effect that happened in this book and it sort of wove its own magic. And he began to say, you know, over time I realized he was talking in a sort of a thoughtful and very interesting way about the things that he was interested in and worried about, because there's a lot of like sort of angst and rumination and sort of hoping that he had done the right things, whether professionally or personally, or in terms of his um, marriage or in terms of his parenting. And then you get the, all the way to the end of the book. And this is no spoiler because it says it on the packaging and you realize that he's sitting at his kitchen table and he's just, he's dead. 
He's just recently passed and his spirit is kind of lingering around. And mm. again, the book says that. So I sort of knew it, but I just didn't really, you know, the book is very unclear about at the beginning of it, well, when he died or what happened, it doesn't really say he died. You, you don't find that out until the end and you just have to sort of stick with it. But I found it to be a very interesting and uh, unusual and original and kind of elegiac story that really won me over. So I'll leave it there with those, but they're really wonderful novels written by Irish writers. I love it. Awesome stuff. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, we try to give a, a broad variety for everyone listening to this show. And hopefully, you know, even just by highlighting some of those books that really impacted us, you, know, you may have heard of one or two that you might want to check out. And I appreciate all your contributions uh, to the show as usual, Jude. And uh, we'll just take a quick break now and kind of wrap things up. Uh, and that's it. So let's take it. Let's just take a quick break and we'll come right back. Be right back. So, Jude, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip it around. I think we had talked about, and this is like again on air production meeting time. But we had talked about you know possibilities for our next episode, but I don't think we really nailed it down. So I don't think we're gonna announce exactly what that's gonna be quite yet. Um, is that okay with you? Yeah, it's fine. In terms of, uh, I I don't think I ever said that this is episode 42, but it is. In terms of what we're covering for episode 43. Just stay tuned, you know, uh, follow us in all the ways that you follow podcasts and also on social media, both Jude and myself, and we'll get that word out there. Or look, check back for the description of this episode, and maybe we'll have amended it. Um, but let's just talk real quick about what we're going to read next. I guess I'll start because I've been kicking it over to you each time. So, um, so you know, amongst being a huge reader, uh, you know, we're both just, you know, real movie lovers as well. And so I happened to see, I, I caught up with a movie recently that's, you know, you're talking about buzzy, you know, type movies or books that are buzzy this year. Uh, one of the books that was, one of the movies that was best reviewed this year, but I never had a chance to catch up with, was called The Green Knight. And it's, it's based on, this is one of the things that I thought was really interesting and unusual about it, is that it's based on this, you know, medieval poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight that uh, has an anonymous author. I can't remember exactly when it was written, but firmly in the Middle Ages. And you just don't see that every day, kind of like a movie being based on some medieval material, number one. Yeah. Um, I was also interested in who the director was because he's made a couple other movies that I thought were quite interesting. 
Uh, and one of my sons went to see the movie and was telling me about it. And I was really intrigued. So I finally caught up with the movie. I really liked it. I thought it was fascinating and interesting. And, you know, it's one of these movies that kind of lingers, lingers in your mind after you've seen it. At least it did for me. So then it made me remember that I have the source material sitting on my shelf. It's one of these books that I've had for years and have never read. Um, and there, there are many translations of the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, including one that was done in the middle of the last century by Tolkien, which should interest some of our readers. So, you know, he had translated it, but the American poet W.S. Merwin has a more modern translation, which is the one I had on my shelf. So I just and, really uh, like And also, John, to interrupt you, Steinbeck also took a run at it. Did he really? Like yeah. a translation or did he... Was there something that's just based on that story? I think it's a good question. I, I don't know if he did a translation as much as just doing sort of his own telling of the story, but I think it's called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I did not remember that. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah. Th thanks for that trivia. Anyway, the movie was, it's a really interesting movie, but it just got me thinking more about the source material. And I just thought, you know, I could use a change of pace. So I'm good. That's what I'm going to read. going to you know, a rare dive into medieval epic poetry coming up next for me and uh, let you know how that goes. Well, not the first dive into medieval epic poetry by Mr. John F. Lovell, I, I assure you guys. So, yeah, yeah. that's going to be wild. You were telling me about the movie. I, I said to you, I admit it, I had no interest in it. I had seen a trailer of it and it just looked like a CGI, you know, festival for me. But although I knew it was based on medieval material, but, but yeah, no, like I've seen it come up a few times since you brought it up and I'm going to have to check it out sometime. You know, I may be, you know, I may have jumped a gun there. So we don't want to do that. And then for me, John, we, uh, we I, what? I said, we will see. <laughs> Sorry. I just didn't hear you. Yeah, we will see. And then for me, so it's been a long time coming, and it's late this year. It's not the first year that it's been this late, by the way. But uh, we've talked about it every year. I, I, I set sail on the ship of the annual Dickens Fest, yeah. and I've go. been sort of putting it off all year long, you know. But after I read this Jack Higgins thriller, I'm going to plunge in, and I do mean plunge in. So I'm. this is actually – I should make a bigger deal out of this, but this is actually the 20th anniversary of Dickens Fest starting back in 2001. Oh, um, man. I was just going to ask you, how long has this been going on? 20 years. That's incredible. 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I've made my way through all Dickens novels, and I'm starting to go back through them again. So for those who may not know, the Dickens, my annual Dickens Fest tradition is um, I vowed when I was uh, about 30, 31 years old after a trip to London and uh, specifically a tour of London uh, that was Dickens themed that I would read one Charles Dickens book every year for the rest of my days. And I've stuck to that, except I missed one year early. I think it was 2002. Um, anyway, but I've stuck to that. And uh, so I'm starting to go back through the Charles Dickens novels. So one of my favorites from early on, I believe I read it in 2003 or I want to say three, because I believe, my memories are that we were pregnant with my first daughter, my first child, who was born in 2003 when I was reading this book. But it's Bleak House, which is one of Charles Dickens' biggest, heftiest novels out of his many hefty novels. And it's a, a novel in which he kind of takes on metaphorically the Byzantine legal system 
in Great Britain. So that's a barn burner. I actually really liked um, Bleak House when I read it the first time. It's going to be interesting to see. It's a huge book. I actually stole yours off the shelf. It's a mass market paperback. It's like 900 and something pages with absolutely microscopic print. So I'm going to be in those weeds for months, probably. But I liked it. I actually, and you know, I learned, I actually stood in England. There's uh, the, the courts over there are called the Chancery. And Dickens famously worked before he was a novelist as a stenographer in British courtrooms, which is famously where he learned to pick up the dialogue from working class people, you know, taking notes from it's basically recording legal cases in the English chancery in shorthand. And that's where he picked up his flair for language of the way everyday people spoke coming to argue their cases in the English chancery. I actually stood underneath one of the chancery buildings where he did that work in London. Um, it, and when I say underneath it, it, it was structured in this weird way so that it's a, it's elevated by these, pillars above the ground and you can walk underneath it in concrete hmm. so that sort of i always remembered that when i encountered bleak house the first time but anyway that's what i'm gonna be reading next my annual dickens fest it's a huge book it's gonna take me forever but i'm excited you know dickens dickens is a huge deal for me so yeah well all hail dickens fest is one of the most no noble reading traditions that i am that i'm aware of so you know that's awesome um, all right. Well, I get. I think we've run long enough. I hope people have enjoyed this kind of, uh, you know, year end review type show. Uh, this is going to be our last podcast for the year 2021, but not to worry. We plan on hitting the ground running, you know, in 2022, we've all, we've already talked about a couple future ideas for, for shows. So we've got some good stuff coming up. Just want to thank everybody for listening all throughout the year and wish all of our listeners a very, very happy and restful and relaxed and peaceful holiday season. I agree with that, John. Happy holidays to everybody. And we thank you for listening to the Book Exchange podcast. Talk to you all in 2022.